You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing today? You made it out of bed? Through the snow? Just smash through some piles of snow on your way here? I love doing that. Where the plow's done half the road and then you just... <clears throat> well, I'm excited to be here with you and look at God's Word and, and see what uh, He can teach us today about life and faith. If you were here yesterday during the uh, marriage conference, Dr. Craig Renan certainly gave us a lot to digest, uh, helping us understand why we are the way we are, and, and I certainly saw a lot of dysfunction in my own life that, that will hopefully now I can up- let God's word heal me in those ways so I can be a better husband to my wife. And if you want to hear those messages and if you weren't here, uh, you can get them. They'll be later on, on our website for everyone and we can get you the handouts if you'd like to go through them. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're in our series looking at the life of David, a man like us in every way, uh, not perfect, far from it, uh, but yet a man who caught the eye of God and that God used, uh, even in his failures. And so we're going to study him over the next couple of months. So while you're turning there, that's page uh, 247 in the church Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we want you to take the Bible in front of you and the seat in front of you as our gift to you. While you're turning there, I'm just going to pray. God, would you help us? Uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit to uh, change us. Lord, we've all got issues. We're all a mess. We're all a mess that's being cleaned up by you. And Lord, how well we work along with you will determine how quickly and efficiently that mess is cleaned up. Lord, so we want we wanna you to lead us, Lord, but we want to follow your footsteps, God. So help us to, to take what we can from this and Work in us and change us, Lord, and help me, a simple man, uh, to talk about your great truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Page 247, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. Let's read it together. The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. For I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, because I have selected a king from his sons. Samuel asked, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, Take a young cow with you and say, I have come to a sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will let you know what what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, Do you come in peace? In peace, he replied, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Elab and said, Certainly the Lord's anointed is here before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance. Or his stature, 
because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called Abimelech and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. And Jesse presented Shemel, but Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? There's still one, the youngest, he answered, but right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. I won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him, and he had beautiful eyes and healthy, handsome appearance. And the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. It's been 27 years uh, since we looked at last week's sermon, 27 years since the Lord rejected, or since the people of Israel rejected the Lord as their king, and since they cried out uh, for a king like the other nations, give us what they have. And so since then, they've been uh, almost three, in a, almost to the end of three decades into what we call the third turning, a period of time when uh, their society is going down the tubes, and they're about to head in the worst period of that over the next 13 years until David becomes the king. Saul has turned his back on the Lord, and God is no longer with him. And Samuel, the prophet that used to be a judge, is now a tired, old, worn-out man. And he's down in the dumps. And the Lord says to this man that's down in the dumps, how long are you going to mourn? For Saul, since I have rejected him as king of Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. You know, one of the distinguishing things, there's many of them that makes us different than all of the rest of the animals and all the bugs and everything, all the other creation is our ability. God gave us the ability to imagine. You don't see a bear imagining what it would be like to be a porcupine, right? Or a, or a grasshopper imagining what it would be like to have a million dollars, right? We as humans have the ability to think about what life would be if it was different, if we had a different relationship, if we were different inside, if our bodies were stronger, if we had more wealth, if we had been sanctified to a greater degree, we can imagine, and one of, I think, the people that we as men probably imagine we wish we could be like is David in many ways. I'm sure most men have said, I wish I could be a warrior like David and take down Goliath. Or I wish I could be a leader like David and lead the Israelites and the people into freedom. Or I wish I could write songs like David. Man, he wrote some of the greatest songs ever. I'm sure women, sometimes you look at some of the heroes of the Bible, some women, and say, I wish I could be like that one. I wish I could be like Esther and have the courage of her or, um, or the resourcefulness of, of Ruth. Or, or I could be like Mary, the one who God chose to be the mother of Jesus. Ah, she caught God's eye. You ever imagine your life was different? Well, I've imagined that my life, that I could be like David. And I think... We need to ask ourselves as we imagine, we look at these men and women, uh, what made different, uh, David different? Why was he 
at age 13, age 14, the one that caught God's eyes. You ever thought about that? What made him different? He hadn't slayed Goliath yet. Uh, he hadn't led the people yet. Uh, he was an, nobody knew about his great psalms, or few people did. So what caught God's eye? And as I was thinking about it, you know, I was thinking, well, it can't be his appearance. Because when I look at the scriptures, uh, all the other brothers, they looked a lot better than David did. Right? The first son, Elam, came along and, oh, he looks like handsome and strong and tall. And, and he looks like the kind of leader the world wants, kind of like Saul was 27 years before. God's like, nah. So it couldn't have been David's appearance because he didn't have much of appearance. He wasn't much to look at. Sure, he was healthy and handsome, but he wasn't the fighter and the warrior that they were looking for. It probably wasn't his position either that caught the eye of God. Because what was his position? Well, we can see, because he asked, the prophet asked, Jesse says, uh, do you have any other sons in this? Well, yeah, yeah, I have another son, but he's out looking after the goats and the sheep, or the sheep. Why is he out looking after the sheep? Let's think about this for a second. The prophet has come to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a town known for nothing. It was an armpit of Israel. The only reasons we know of Bethlehem is because David was born there and Jesus was born there. That's the only reason. It was known to not produce much. And so all of a sudden, the prophet shows up here. This is like big time. That's why the people came out and they're like terrified. Oh man, why is he here? What does he want? You come in peace? Yeah, I'm here in peace. And then he picks this family, right? This family. And, and they all call all the family together. All right, it's a big party. This is like the biggest event that's ever happened to our family. The prophet wants to, us to come and be a part of the sacrifice. But they don't even see David as somebody worth calling. You notice that? Not even worth the time to call. And so it wasn't his position because the only thing he was good for, according to his family, was to look after the sheep. And so what was it? And as I was thinking about it and studying about studying the life of David, at least these first, uh, what we know of his first 13 or 14 years, there's one word that kept coming up, and that is faithful. David was faithful. He was faithful, and because he was faithful, he caught the eye of God. When I was a new Christian, uh, and I was just started attending church, uh, there was a sermon that I heard once preached on 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. And it stuck with me, and it still stuck with me. It says, for the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong to those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. Did you get that? Did you see that? It's not the eyes of the Lord roam to see who the most gifted person is so that God can show himself to him. It's not the best looking person. Or it's not the one with the most resources. It's to a person who's devoted, faithful, same sort of thing. So that what? God can show himself strong to that person. And I'm, I remember imagining, picturing that, and I, and I thought, wow, God, God's going through. He's, he's looking in the hearts of all the men and women in this church that I was sitting in, and, and he's going throughout the town and out the country and throughout the world. That's what it says. Looking, not for the best and for the brightest, but for those who are faithful, devoted. And David 
caught the eye. And of all the people he had to pick from, uh, they say, historians say, uh, the population was somewhere between half a million and a million during that period, what we're talking about here. So let's say 300,000 men, roughly. That's a lot of men to choose from. And yet, he chooses this one. And it's not like all of the rest of them didn't love God, but there was something about him. And so I see three reasons why God, David had pro, uh, proven himself faithful. Number one, and all of this is in your handout, David was faithful in his everyday life circumstances, in what we would call his lot of life, his lot in life. You ever heard of that? And, and so it's, it's not that he was only faithful in specific times. In the everyday nitty-gritties of life, he proved himself faithful. How do we know this? What did he do? What did his life look like? Well, he was a shepherd. And that's all we really see that he's done. That's been his life. Probably from, from the time he could walk, he was out there learning from the older brothers. And now it was left to him. He's the youngest, and so it falls upon him. What was life like for a shepherd? It was low class. It's like working the worst minimum wage job you could think of. You were out living in the wilderness in the hot sun, the hot Israelite sun, you were scorching. When it rained, you were getting wet. You slept on the ground. You didn't go stay at an Airbnb while your sheep went in the barn. You got simple food. The pay was nilch. He wasn't getting paid. He didn't get an allowance. It was go and do it. This is your job. Who do you hang out with? Maybe his next youngest brother or the brother above him and maybe a servant or two. It was a very lonely existence. How long would he do it? Shepherds would go out for weeks at a time and they would get resupplied. So we're talking about an existence that we would probably say stinks, right? We'd probably look at David's life and say, oh, David deserves so much better. And we, Canadians, probably wouldn't want an existence like the one that David has. Yet, in his ordinary, boring existence, it seems that scripture said he was faithful Faithful, he wasn't whining, he wasn't complaining, he wasn't blaming God, he wasn't blaming everyone else. He was faithful. We even know that after he was anointed, so made the promise. Now, who would have known that he was going to be king? The family of Jesse, it says that in the scriptures, that the family knew. And Samuel, the village elders didn't know, Saul didn't know. Why? Because they would, Saul would have killed him. He, that's why the prophet says, I can't go there and anoint another king because he's going to kill me. So all, the only people that knew was David, his family, and the prophet. And after that, what does David go and do? He goes back to being a shepherd. He knows he's been made the promise, but that's not a time yet. He doesn't go and say, okay, I'm going to be the king, so I want a different life, dad. You better start, brothers, you better start showing me respect or when I make king. No, he just went back to being faithful in his ordinary plain life. And that's what God wants us to do. That's what God says is a faithful life. First Thessalonians 5.18 says, give thanks in everything, and, or other translations say, in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Another way we see David faithful is in his God-given roles. What do I mean by roles? I mean, he had some roles. He was playing out some roles. He was the role of a son to a dad who kind of played favorites, who demonstrated that he didn't really think much of his son because he didn't even call him for the big dinner. And so 
Yet through this, through his interactions we see with his father, he always seemed to show him respect. He always seemed to do what his father asked him and honor his father. Even though he didn't get the love from his father, he didn't probably get the compassion that a kid wants, and yet he honors him. Why? Because God told him to honor him. You shall love your mother and you shall honor your mother and father. That was one of the commands. He was also playing out the role of a brother. Right? A brother to a, a bunch of brothers that weren't really nice to him. We see that later when, when he gets up. It says uh, later on, I think in, in chapter 17, it says, or he gets up and, uh, from shepherding and his father says, go take some food to your three older brothers that are at the war. And so he, he gets the food and he treks off and he takes some to the commander and to his brothers and he's, and he's there and, and his, he's watching the battle and he's like, I can't believe this is happening. This Goliath guy is lipping off to but our God. And the, the brothers come up, are you really here? Like, and I'm paraphrasing, where'd you leave your few little measly sheep, boy? Like, get out of here. You just want to see the big boys play. Like, get. Just rude to them. And yet, even in his response, he says, what have I done now? He doesn't say, you know, I'm going to be the king. And when I'm the king, there's going to be some payback. He was a brother honoring in that culture the older brothers. And so he was playing out his roles. And we've all got roles in our lives. God has given you the roles. If we believe God is sovereign, in charge of everything, then the roles you are playing out as husband, as wife, as mother, as father, as son, as daughter, um, as friend, those are roles given to you by God. And so the question is, are we faithful in those roles? Because we often want different relationships, better relationships, different circumstances, but God says, no, it's in the everyday. It's in your roles today. Are you being faithful? And David was. And even though his father was inadequate, David knew in Psalm 27 verse 10, he says, even if I, my father and mother abandoned me, the Lord cares for me. His identity was in God. And so because of that, he was able to respond to his parents in honor and his brothers. And the, and the third area we see that he was faithful in, he was, he was a faithful follower of Christ or God as he knew him to be. How do we know this? Well, we see it in his life. First of all, we see it in the way he cared for what God had given him for. This is different than the first point. Uh, what was his existence? The sheep, right? That was what God had given him. And again, thinking of God as sovereign, that means he knew that everything good in his life has come from God. And we have to recognize that everything we've been given has come from God. And what was he given? Some sheep to look after. And how do we know he took it seriously? Because he was willing to die for those sheep. He was willing to die for some stinky, stubborn sheep that would never thank him. How do we know that? Because he took on a lion and he took on a bear. And nobody is willing to bleed for something unless it means a lot. And he demonstrated that he took his responsibilities seriously, his responsibility in being a follower of Christ. And we see that in the way he talked, in the way he wrote, right? He wrote some of the Psalms when he was a shepherd. Uh, he was a guy who was always thinking about God, always dwelling about God, always talking to God. And that's how he became a man after God's own heart. You don't become a man after God's own heart unless you're investing in a relationship with God. So there he is at 13 or 14 years old, and God has already seen in him something different than the other men of the nation. 
And we see that he took his role as shepherd and as Christ follower seriously. And, and so this is what I want you to write down if you're going to write down something. I want you to write down this. Your faithfulness in the everyday qualifies or disqualifies you for greater responsibilities. What I'm not saying is your faithfulness or lack thereof qualifies you or disqualifies you for God's love. He gives that to you free. I'm not saying that it disqualifies you from being saved. He gives that to you for free. But for greater responsibilities in your life, for greater change in your life, the way you handle what he's already given you in your circumstances, your time, your money, your body, what you do with it matters to God. The way you live out the roles that God has given you to play out matter to God. And how much you invest in the relationship matters to him. Why would he give more and greater if we're not even willing to look after that which he's already given us. And that's why Jesus says in Luke 16, whoever is faithful with very little is also faithful with much, right? And so I know we spend a lot of our time imagining, praying for different circumstances. Oh, if I just got this much money, then I'd be faithful. If, I, if my spouse just changed this much, then I'd be nice to them. If my children would just listen to me this much, then I would stop flipping out at them, and so on and so forth. We're always imagining, we're always praying that God would change our circumstances. But the question we need to be asking is, are we being faithful in what he's already given us? And I know that I'm a dreamer. My wife would tell you I'm a dreamer. My head's in the clouds often, thinking about things down the way, adventures I'd like to go on, and so on and so forth. And while I was on my sabbatical, and I had time, and time to reflect, and time to look at my life, and time to ask God to show me who I really was, and I really had to ask myself, as I dreamt, am I being faithful in the here, in the now, in the present circumstances of my life, with what he's given me, with the time he's given me? Am I wasting it, or am I using it well? Am I being faithful as a father and as a, as a son and as a husband and as a friend and as a pastor? Am I being faithful in these things? Am I being faithful to God and making him first in my life consistently every day? And if not, I need to take my head out of the clouds and focus on the today. And I think so much of our heartaches in life come from us either dreaming about what it'll be like if I just change a few things or looking into the past and saying it was so good back then. And so often we're not focused on the here and the now and we cause big problems in our lives. You notice what he wasn't doing. Two things David wasn't doing. We don't see him doing it. Maybe he did it, but we don't see evidence of it. God didn't see it uh, that we should know it. We, we see that he's never riding the blame train. David's never riding the blame train. Like Saul, everything was everyone else's fault. It's God's fault. It's the other people's fault. It's their fault. It's my family's fault. That's Saul's life. That's why Saul was a prideful man. Pride will always push you to blame other people for your problems. But David was a humble man, and so he didn't blame other people. Did he have reason? Yeah, he could have blamed his father. You treated me so badly. You could have given me love, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he could have treated, blamed his brothers. You treated me poorly, and this is why I'm so full of anger, and so on and so forth. This is my lot in life. I got to look after sheep. Why can't I be like the other guys? Right? 
Of course he had reasons to blame. And I'm not saying that bad stuff doesn't happen and that mean, mean stuff hasn't been done to you by other people. But let me ask you a question. Does blaming other people change anything? It doesn't change anything. In fact, usually what it does is create bitterness inside of us. And it wastes our life and wastes our time. And I know people, I come into uh, interact with them, who have a season's pass on the blame train. They just go around and around and they live on that train and their whole life is pointing out all the ways other people have let them down. And it's sad to see. Another thing we don't see him, he's not a passenger on the pity bus either. We've all been on the pity bus, if we're being honest. I certainly have. I remember uh, uh, one of my instructors, uh, when I was feeling sorry for myself, uh, in in uh, battle school, uh, after he'd made me march on the uniform that I'd spent all night ironing and perfectly, uh, he says, he went, oh, you want me to call the ambulance? <coughs> that really helped. <coughs> but we've all spent time on on there on that bus, right? And uh, Elijah did, the greatest prophet probably of all time, the one we know of in 1 Kings uh, up to 19, he's gone through hardship, he's gone through famine, he's gone through drought, he's gone through war, he's gone through persecution, uh, he's hated, and, and he gets to this point, he has this great victory, and then they send out a, uh, a hit on his life, and he's just like, I'm finished, I'm done, and he retreats into the wilderness, and, and God finds him, and you, you know what God says to him? God, in his just, he's just, just so calm, and he's so good, and he says this, why are you here, Elijah? And, and Elijah goes on, there's nobody left. Everybody's turned on you. I'm the only one left. Life is just horrible. You might as well just kill me, God. It's so bad. And again, God responds to him a second time. Why are you here, Elijah? And sometimes I think God, in our pity and in the sad places we find ourselves in, says, why are you here? This isn't where I want you to be. This isn't who I designed you to be. You're caught up in all the stuff out here, focusing on me. I'm the one that will give you your identity. I'm the one that will bring you through this hardship. Write this down. One of the greatest gifts God has given us in him, not outside of him, in him is the ability to change. What a great gift it is from God that through him working in us, we can change Oh, man, you wouldn't want to see me 10 years ago and know me 10 years ago. But glory to God that he is changing me and that I won't be the same person in 10 years from now. And he's given you that ability. If you desire it, he'll work through you to change you. But you have a part to play. It's not all him. You don't get to sit back on the lazy boy and let him do all the changing. It's a dance. He leads and you follow. And if you're a person who wants change, I'm going to give you six ways that we see in Scripture that I've personally seen work in my life to seeing lasting change. Because I know we all want to change, but the reality is that very few people actually do change. Very few people will sort out their finances, even though it's all there in God's Word on how to have a healthy financial system. Very few people's marriages will get better, even though God, as Craig said, it's, it's all there in God's Word, and, and the psychologists are just coming up and realizing now, but it's been there for thousands of years. But very few people will take it and actually apply it to our lives. We have a part to play, and if you want to, here's six steps you can apply to your life. First, humble yourself. 
humble yourself. You cannot expect lasting change unless you are willing to humble yourself. God talks so much about humility. Listen to what he says through the prophet Micah in chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love faithfully and to walk humbly before your God? When we humble ourselves, we get off our high horse, we stop blaming, we stop pointing fingers, we stop feeling sorry for ourselves, and we're able to come down and and take a good look at ourselves and see where we are the problem. And we are actually willing to accept help from God and from other people. Humility is what draws God close to you. Pride pushes him away. That's step one. Step two, take stock of your faithfulness in your everyday. Not your spouses, not the church and how they've let you down, or your parents, but you. Take stock. It's it's an old term. It's essentially doing inventory of your life. Do an inventory of your faithfulness in what? In those three things, in your circumstances. So, so this is homework for you. Look at the way you spend your money. Look at the way you spend your time. Look at the way you treat your body. And God has given you these things. In your present circumstances, how do you do? Are you faithful according to his word, according to his instruction? Uh, take stock in your faithfulness in your roles, in whatever roles he's giving you to play out, are you living them out to the very best of your ability according to the way he desires you to? And number three, take stock of your relationship with God. Like it's a relationship. And so it takes effort and time, cultivation. Do you put that in there? Or is he just an afterthought? Or someone you give a shout out to when it's mealtime? Take stock of your life because we will all give an account. Romans 14, 12 says, so each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's, that's talked about several times throughout scripture, but it's even better if we are able to give an account of our lives now and say, wow, in our humble states, you know, I, I've really been falling short in that area and I've really been ignoring God's instruction in this area and, and, and I, I really need to change in this area. When we do that, someday we'll be more likely to stand in front of God and and hear that well done, good and faithful servant that we all want to hear. So that's step two. Step three, ownership. You got to own your life, your part to play. You know, David, and amongst his failures, as we're going to see later, after his affair and his murder, he he took ownership of his life. We got to give him that. And we see about it. He wrote about it for us to know. He didn't try and hide it. Psalm 51, verse 3, or verses 1 to 3. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For my transgressions and my sin are ever before me. That's a person taking ownership. That's a person humbling themselves, taking stock of their life, and taking ownership. And here's the thing. And I say this out of care, and I say this not to condemn anybody. But it's not anyone else's responsibility to sort out your own life. It's yours and God's. God is there. He's perfect. He's willing. But you have a part. And before it's anyone else's responsibility, it's yours. So if your marriage is in a bad place, 
It's not the church's, it's not the psychiatrist, it's not other people's responsibility to work on your marriage. It's you and your, your partner humbling yourself and taking ownership. If you have kids and, and your, your kids just seem out of control and then you're just like, somebody fix the problem. The reality is, is that it's not somebody else's problem because they didn't choose to bring your children into the world. You did, and, and God is there, and he wants to work with you, uh, but you have to take ownership of your children. It's your finances. It's, it's not somebody else's uh, responsibility, even though the government wants you to think it's their responsibility, to look after your finances. It's, it's yours. God has given you all the tools. It's right there. But here's the thing. The great thing is when you take ownership not only does God get involved in the, these areas of your life, but other people see. Other people want to help someone who takes ownership of their life. Other people don't want to help someone who just blames everything on everyone else. And you'll see that. People will come around you when you take responsibility and ownership for your life. Number four, seek guidance. Seek guidance. We all need guidance. We all need help. First of all, from the Lord. James 1, 5. Now, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously and unbegrudgingly, and it will be given to him. So, we seek God, and we seek his word. And here's the thing. We actually need to apply it to our lives. And so, I'm not here uh, trying to give you uh, worldly wisdom just to speak. I actually want you to take what God has put there. He put it in there. I didn't come up with it because he's the creator of everything in life and he knows how to live life. And then apply it to your life. And if you don't apply it to your life, if it's just up here, they won't have any effect on you. It won't see any change. You won't know the life that God wants for you. And then you need to... Seek wise Christians. By wise, I mean Christians who are actually living it out. Not perfect, because there's no perfect Christian. But people who genuinely, you see, want to live for God and who apply God's truth to their lives. As Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Without guidance, a people will fall, but in the abundance of counselors, there is deliverance. We all need help. We all need wise counsel. But again... You can't go to somebody who's, let's say, got uh, their finances sorted out, hear what they have to say and say, oh, I don't want that, and expect anything different. You should just expect more of what you already have. You need to apply it to your life. Number five, make measured goals, which will lead to change. Measured goals, and meaning you see where you want to go. You see where you are today. You don't try and make it in two bounds. You have to make measured goals, little steps forward, little steps of obedience and faith. And you'll see it working and it will encourage you. The reason why most resolutions don't work is because they're too big, they're too vast. There's too much change in too short of amount of time. You must commit it to the Lord. As uh, Proverbs 16.3 says, commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish the plans. You will feel God is calling you there, commit it to him. God, I want to do this education. God, I want to get a new job. God, I want to improve my parenting for your glory. Help me, God. Set out the plans and walk towards them. When I left the army and, uh, or when I felt God calling me to leave the army, and it was 2009. But I wasn't going to leave the army for another two years. And then I wasn't going to be done my degree for another four years. That's six years away. If I just quit my job next week and showed up at a church and said, hey, God called me to be a pastor, hire me. They'd be like, get lost. And I'd be a pretty bad parent, wouldn't I? 
No, it, it took a lot of stuff because I had a grade 10 education. And so it was, okay, God, uh, here's the next step. I'm, I'm doing this. Help me through this. And here's the next step. And here's the next step. And it's a slow progression of faithful, obedient steps. And God will reroute you. And God, sometimes you'll fail. And, and you'll have to change the plan. But that's the way to see change. Nothing happens easy. There's no hacks. And last, number six, discipline your life. It's not a word we like in North America, to be honest. But Paul knew what discipline was. That's why he was so effective, one of the reasons he was so effective. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27. Now, anyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown. But we do it for an imperishable, sorry, they do it for a perishable crown, but we will receive an imperishable crown. So we do not run aimlessly or box like one who is beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control. Self-discipline is something that you really need if you want to see change. It's, it's instead of somebody else disciplining you, you decide to discipline yourself. And it goes back to taking stock of your life. You look at your life and you say, well, these are things God says I have to do. These are my responsibilities. These are things God says are good. But I waste a lot of time doing this and this and this. So these things need to go in order for me to get better at doing these things and being more faithful. That's how you actually apply that. And so it means saying no to things that are maybe good to yes to things that are much better. But you have to do that. I can't force you to. You need to take that initiative. And look at, our, look at verse 12 in 1 Samuel again, and then we'll close. This is the thing, right? He was a man after God's own heart, but he hadn't been filled with the Holy Spirit yet. Verse 12, then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Holy Spirit of the Lord, or the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Notice that? He wasn't some superhuman. He was just a guy living as faithful as he could to his God, making the best of hard circumstances. And because of that, he caught the eye of God. And God's like, I'm going to show myself strong to this young man. And he filled him with his spirit. And that's what he wants to do for you and me. There's nothing different than David from you and I. Just a regular guy who took God seriously. And he can do the same if you'll take him seriously too. I'm going to pray and then we're going to recommit ourselves to the Lord as, we, as Gary leads us in communion. God, I thank you so much that you are not finished with me yet. And that you're not finished with these men or women. Lord, some, some maybe only have a little bit of time left on this earth. Some maybe have 40, 50, 60 years. Some come from uh, a lot of great uh, circumstances. And some come from pretty hard circumstances. Lord, but you are just interested in us where we are today. So I pray we would be encouraged, Lord. And see from the life of David what you're looking for. And Lord, apply the, the, the principles from your word that will lead to change. And God, give us the determination to want something better, to want to uh, live a faithful life for your name's sake and for the benefit of those around us. Lord, help us because we're all flawed. We're all a mess, as Craig would say. We're all in desperate need of your grace today. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.